economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show today. I'm Nate Johnson, the producer and graduate assistant for the Gortney Institute. Today on our show, we have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gortney Institute and Wayne Angel Chair of Economics. We also have Dr. Justin Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics. And finally, Dr. Peter Jacobson, the Gortney Professor of Economic Education and Research. Okay, so I thought today we'd talk about the dangers of democracy, which might sound blasphemous to some folks who are listening, but just hold on tight. I think there's too much credibility and value that's placed in the single word democracy when really it's a bundled thing that we think we are asking for with democracy. So I think for starters, let's just go on the premise that democracy simply means majority rule in general. And you can have different rules that maybe you need two thirds of the vote or something to make a change or something. But in general, 51% or whatever, majority rule, which then allows the majority to rule the roost in collective, what we call collective action problems in economics. So things involving groups of people. It's easier when you have a, a small family to maybe go with something that's unanimous. But if ultimately larger groups and we decide, well, let's just go with majority rule, that's really all democracy is. And so today what we want to try to unpack is some of the other things that are needed for democracy to even have a chance of being a good idea, because it really can be a bad idea if it's left with just majority rule. And maybe I'll throw it over to Justin here to kind of expand on that a little bit. Okay. Democracy, you know, literally means like rule by the many, right? And traditionally, when we think about how democracy works, we think of, you know, voting with majorities where the majority of an opinion carries the weight and therefore can be implemented as policy on the whole. And it will come as a shock to people to realize that, you know, prior to seven seconds ago, every political philosopher from Plato to Rawls has argued that untrammeled democracy by itself is extremely dangerous. And you don't only find this in political philosophy, you find this as a kind of cultural wisdom. I think there's a plausible reading of the Bible, which illustrates this point, and kind of you find this analogous argument in the death of Socrates. So I can think of a few arguments against untrammeled democracy. And I'd be happy to spell those out. Uh, let's start with untrammeled. What do you mean by that? Meaning that the way we settle all our issues is by having a democratic election. That is, for any issue, how we decide that issue is we take a vote. And people think that the United States is a democracy. It was not intended to be. It was intended to be a republic. There's that famous line from, was it Madison, who you know, was asked, you know, what did you give us, a democracy or a kingship? And they said, we, we'll, we've given you a republic if you can keep it. And the point of having a, what's called a democratic republic, is that we have a republic where the leaders are democratically elected. So the, the people who administer the republic are responsible to the voters in the sense that they can be 
democratically elected or you know driven from office. But that is different from saying that for any social policy, we should take you know the democratic temperature and then impose that on the rest of the, the country. So really briefly, the idea of political rights that an individual has a political right that is something that the government may not do to them that does not exist in a pure democracy. In a pure democracy, what can be done to you is whatever the majority wants done to you. I think it's important to talk about that. Maybe a good example to illustrate this will be, you can have, for example, a democratic system of governments that people call a democracy that also has a system of capitalism. But one important thing to point out is that insofar as that a specific country uses capitalism to allocate resources, that is instead of democracy. In other words, as long as you have a capitalistic system, you don't have democracy over certain things. And so I, I think a really good illustration of this, you know, we're called the Gortney Institute after Dr. James Gortney, Jim Gortney, who we've had on the podcast before. You can go back and listen to that episode, but he's got a great book, Common Sense Economics. And he points out some differences between market allocation and democratic allocation that I think will help listeners sort of frame, you know, this difference that they might not have thought of before. And so there's three major differences. Um, one is that majority rule, and Justin's already brought this up, decides in democracy decides the allocation of resources, whereas under capitalism, all decisions are voluntarily voluntary. In other words, you have to agree to an exchange before it happens. And so under democracy, that's not the case. You don't have to agree to a specific tax being passed or a specific bridge being built. You might disagree, but if the majority agrees, then you're out of luck. The second difference is that because you're only one small vote in a pool of a large majority, oftentimes in democratic decision-making, people don't have an incentive to be informed. If you're buying a new car for yourself, you wanna learn about the car because if the car goes out, you're gonna be in trouble. If you vote for the wrong person, what's the chance that you're going to cause a problem? Very small because you're almost, it's almost impossible for you to affect the outcome at all in our country. You're more likely to be killed by lightning on the way to the voting booth than you are to change the results of an election. So very little incentive to be informed. And then finally, politics is sort of a one size fits all process. That is when you vote for someone, you vote for all of the things that they agree with, you're not picking and choosing. When you go to the store, you get to fill your cart with different things. And so again, this is just to highlight a lot of times people think, oh, well, democracy means capitalism. These are the same thing. No, actually, insofar as we have capitalism in the U.S., it's because we don't have democracy over certain things. And in our case, the allocation of resources and the means of production and things like that. Yeah. So the distinction that I think Justin has beat me up a couple times on, people have the perception that the preferences of the majority is good for society. And my rebuttal that I don't think Justin likes is that society doesn't exist. <laughs> society is really just a collection of individuals. And if we use individuals as the unit of measurement, you look at things a lot differently, that having some majority opinion of preferences is not the right way that's not necessarily good for this collection of people that we call society. That's weird that as an economist who probably is a more, a more traditional welfare economist than me, that is like you probably like agree with most of the micro textbook welfare economic stuff that you say that because like the classic example, again, this is from Jim too, actually, is we can imagine, Paul, let's say we have a five person democracy and there's a policy that confers $2 on of benefit towards the people who vote for it. And it costs $10 to each person who vo votes against it. 
you know, three people can get together and just decide to pass this policy, they each get $6. The two people who lost, you know, lose $10 each or $5 each, maybe is even more reasonable. Society as a whole, let's say $5 each is $4 poorer than it was before. And so like, I think we can meaningfully talk about society in the sense that if you look at people's wealth, you know, uh, in the, in this world, it's going to be lower by $4, but certain people in this society can be better off from it. So it's, I'm surprised that you're denying society when like, whenever we talk about inefficiency in economics, that's always based on like inefficiency for whom? Well, kind of society is who we're talking about, right? Well, ontology, which is the study of what things there are, is of course a classic branch of philosophy. And we'll note that when Russ said <laughs> societies don't exist, he then followed it up by saying society just is, and then gave a description of things which he thinks does exist. <laughs> so uh, as long as Russ wants to say that collections do exist uh, and that individuals exist, then he's going to be tied into a little bit of a logical knot if he claims that society doesn't exist. <laughs> I think what Russ should say is we ought to conduct calculation at the level of the individual, and we, should, we ought to be methodological individualists. Yes, and, and I agree with Justin, and it just isn't quite as effective. So I will go with my illogical statement to try to get the point across to the average Joe that we should be focused exactly as you just said on the individual more so than some sort of magic mystical society that will cure all of our woes. So I'd like to jump back, you know, a couple millennia in history. And let's look at, you know, what is the great society? Where does democracy come from? We go, oh, well, it comes from the Athenians, those wise Athenians. And what is the, what's the most important output of the Athenians? Well, arguably, it's the works of Plato and Aristotle. You know, philosophy has been described as a series of footnotes to Plato. Uh, the one thing that almost everybody reads in high school, if you read any Plato, is the death of Socrates. And what the death of Socrates is, is Plato telling about how his teacher, Socrates, was brought up on charges in Athens for corrupting the youth. The formal charge was presenting the weaker argument as the stronger and making corrupting the youth in the sense that making them not believe in the gods of the cities. So mm. Socrates is literally pissing people off and the authorities and you know the tastemakers in society thought that he was making the weaker argument the stronger, meaning convincing people of things that they didn't like. So they essentially bring it up on charges of heresy, and he is put to death by democratic vote. Hmm. Incidentally, you know, the vote to convict him in Athens, they would have two votes. First, you vote on conviction, whether it's guilty or not guilty. And then if it's a guilty verdict, then there's a, another vote on punishment. And both the prosecution and the defense propose a punishment, and you vote on which one to accept. And very interestingly, in Socrates' case, the vote for uh, conviction was pretty close. And then as uh, punishment, prosecution said, we suggest death. And Socrates said, I suggest that you give me free lunches in the Pertanium, which is like the government's, the governor's mansion, <laughs> and a 20 drachma fine, which is a very light fine. Um, so he essentially said, well, well, I suggest as punishment, you give me free lunch at the governor's mansion and make me pay a $5 fine. And more people voted to put him to death than voted to convict him in the first place. So not only does that show that, <laughs> you know, a, you know, the mob is willing to execute somebody who is 
a great person in the city. The you know, bloodlust. The reason we remember the Athenians. But the mob is also irrational, right? In the sense that more people want to put him to death because they felt insulted than were willing to convict him in the first place. Sounds like the same thing Pilate faced with uh, Jesus. Yeah, the... so then look, you can jump forward a little bit and you look at this, you know, the story of Jesus in the Gospels. There's a philosopher, René Girard, who has this interpretation of the Bible and he says that's what the God, his interpretation of the Gospel story is that, and the, the death of, and resurrection of Christ, is that it was an attempt to show that the individual is innocent against the mob and that the mob is always scapegoating. And a scapegoating mob, there's another way we can describe that. And that is democracy, Democracy. (laughs) right? Everybody likes democracy, but when you actually see, and you can actually find this in public discourse too, right? Uh, What do people call exercises in democracy that they don't like? They call it populism or, (laughs) you know, astroturf or something like that. So really you find this, this word democracy, you know, like it's supposed to be this value, but when we actually try to define it or see it in action, we find that it's very messy, it's irrational and angry, and nobody can agree on what it is. Yeah, so, you're making me think of Bastiat a little bit with legal plunder, that we, we can get the mob mentality values going, and it's legal because, oh, it's democracy, right? And so we have a system in place that allows the mob to win, so to speak, through the mechanism of democracy. Yeah, so I want to kind of sum up some of the things we've said so far so we can kind of keep it all straight. I think there's several good arguments against the idea that democracy is always and everywhere the best form of government. One good argument is this argument that the, there's no reason to expect the majority to be like the moral or the, the, the opinion that makes society or individuals, we could say, better off. You know, that's the first one is like, we shouldn't expect majority rule to correspond with the best option. Mm-hmm. So that that's one. With diverse preferences. And, and like the, the very easy example of this is like, if you're on an island and two people vote to make the other person their servant. Like, obviously, we all agree that this is not a moral thing that's going on. It's a democratic outcome that's possible. We all agree that, okay, fine, democracy in this case, not okay. Maybe it's populism if we don't like it. And so that, that's one argument. Another argument is that we should expect at least on a functional level democracy to have some problems. So even if we ignore the moral issue that majorities aren't necessarily moral, it might not be the best in terms of like technical implementation. And so, you know, I mentioned Mm -hmm. or alluded to this idea of the irrational voter or actually they are rational. The, the voter is rational. They rationally, rational yeah, they're, they're so rational. I, I wanted ignorance. to bring the second half into that. So yeah. yeah okay. Which we, we can come back to. So voters can be rationally ignorant or by the way, because democracy is sort of a blunt tool, again, it's sort of like a winner-take-all thing. You don't actually capture all the same information that you would in, for example, a market. And so the nice thing about market allocation is, you know, if the price of gas goes up, for example, that signals to everyone, it, it communicates knowledge that something has happened that made gasoline more scarce for the current time. That's It's a very fine measurement that tells you something about the world. Does... of the vote tell you more than 52% of the vote. What about 56% of the vote? No, politicians only care about 50% plus one. Uh Anything apart from that doesn't signal anything at all. And so you lose a lot of true knowledge about the world when you replace something like a market with something like democracy. It's a more blunt language. It doesn't communicate knowledge as well. So now you're bringing up another thing for second half. Sounds like median voter theory. Yeah, so there's sort of a median voter thing. 
And then I'd say even thirdly, I think there's a third argument, which I've become more interested in lately, which is that I actually don't believe that democracy is true system that exists anyways. I am increasingly convinced that regardless of the outcome of elections, that societies will tend to have a revolving door of elites who control the policies. And maybe you can kind of frustrate them for a few months by voting a way they didn't want you to. But ultimately, they're going to get their will regardless of what the majority wants. And so I actually don't think democracy in practice uh, is power to the majority. I think it's just another mechanism by which the elites are able to grab power. I think Justin has something. We'll add one more argument, a fourth one. Oh, we got a big second half coming. (laughs) Find this in the work of Robert Paul Wolf, who is an anarchist political philosopher and also an economic Marxist. But his argument is that we ought to expect democratic societies to become more and more totalitarian. And the reason we ought to expect that is because when there is a bright line between governor and governed, like in a situation with a king, the people who are governed can complain that they are being governed unjustly by the governor. But the entire theory of democracy says that we are doing this to ourselves. We are governing ourselves. And since we are governing ourselves, we have less room to complain when the politics tends to subsume more and more features of our lives. Since we're doing it to ourselves, we can't complain. And that sounds like the road to serfdom a little bit there. On Inevitably, we lead towards totalitarianism. So what I think our second half listeners, our challenge is how do we make democracy work? So we've kind of pointed out some of the awful aspects. You know, what's the alternative, I think, is the reasonable thing. So we'll pick up there after our break. Please visit our website at 123povertysucks.org. There you will find our events, blog, our swag shop. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at 123povertysucks or on Facebook at Gortney Institute for updates on our activities and research. The Gortney Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom and justice and its impact on human flourishing, faith and economics in action. Here at Ottawa, we have a new microeconomics course that's available to high school students. You can earn college credit through Ottawa University and have it count towards your high school credit if your high school allows, um, or you'll just be able to transfer that to some other college uh, where you choose to go. But we hope you choose to come here. If you're looking for a college like that, Contact Peter, Justin, or Russ today. Don't forget to check our show notes for this episode at podcast.123povertysucks.org. Welcome back. We uh, had a bunch of things there prior to the break on rational ignorance and median voter theory, throw out some Bastiat. I mean, these are all books that are written on some of these topics, for sure, book chapters, if nothing else. So I wanted to bring up one little model that I like to do with my students who may be kind of hung up on democracy. And I, I bring them through a model where I have a totally equal distribution of let's say two pieces of candy to 10 people. And so you have 10 people, each have two pieces of candy. So that's a very equitable distribution. Everything's equal, even Steven. And then I show another distribution where one person has 19 pieces of candy and and one person has one and the rest have zero, a very unequal, you know, rich versus poor type setup. And I asked them, you know, do you think we could ever get to 
to the unequal distribution with a, with a voting. And of course, it seems kind of weird at first. And the rules are simply that we're going to go through a series of votes and I'm the agenda setter. And if you will, if you don't gain or win any candy, then you abstain from voting. So you're kind of rationally ignorant because it doesn't get you anything to be to have a dog in the hunt. And otherwise, if you gain a piece of candy, you vote yes for the vote. And if you lose a piece of candy, you vote no. And so through a series of just six votes, six iterations, I can change the equal, everybody's got two to 19 and one through a series of votes, using that as the rule of voting. And it kind of quickly shows how we can turn what seems to be a perfectly equal distribution into a very unequal distribution through a series of a, through a democratic process. And just to be clear, nobody votes if the, if the outcome doesn't affect them, but they all vote rationally when the outcome does affect them. That's right. So yeah. they all vote yes. for what's in their best interest. That's right. Okay. Yeah. And so, you know, that does bring up issues of, well, how do people really vote and all that, but that's the rules of the model. And it's kind of interesting to see, because then I actually do do the vote. I have 10 students come up and uh, we kind of do a vote, like all those in favor, say aye, all those against. And again, in six iterations, you're down to the 19 dictator. I have 19 pieces of candy and one person has one and the rest have zero. Yeah, I, I think that that actually communicates like very interestingly, the point that I was making before break goes out. When you look in the backgrounds, well, what's going on? There's an agenda setter, right? Mm-hmm. And that agenda setter, based on what they want, they can move around the agenda in such a way that the candy will go who they want it to go to. That's sort of the interesting outcome of this is if you have an agenda setter at all, which, by the way, that's a feature of the democratic system. You know, even if you have a ballot, the ballot is in order, right? Yeah. So they're the house, the president, whatever, the leader, there's always somebody there. That's right. And so I I think that communicates this idea that I've become uh, more and more convinced of that really uh, even things that are democracy in name and do have a majority rule process can be easily channeled to be beneficial just to a select elites. And I think we really saw this, you know, with the, the Trump years and the 2020 election, there was that great sort of like mask dropping article after Trump was elected that, well, the deep state actually does exist. And here's why it's a good thing. I can't remember where, do you know where it was published, Justin? Which paper? No. Okay. It was basically an article saying like, Trump was right. We do have a deep state. And here's all the things that they did to prevent Trump's election. And this proves it's a good thing because Trump was a terrible president. We needed a new one. And look how great the deep state is for saving (laughs) us. It was sort of like a weird, like admission that yes, we do have these elites in our society who have the levers of power but that's good because it prevents crazy people like Trump from getting in charge. Wow. And now, of course, this is one person writing an article. It's not the opinion of like everyone in the world necessarily. But I think it's basically true that, you know, we have bureaucrats who are agenda setters, by the way. They keep their jobs from term to term. You know, there was a great paper on the National Bureau of Economic Research that came out recently that showed basically the there's no odd turnover in democratic elections. In other words, once when presidency changes hands from Republican to Democrat or vice versa, there is not an abnormal amount of turnover in bureaucracies. What that means is that bureaucracies are unresponsive to democratic outcomes. People don't leave when a sp- particular p- political party wins. You might say, oh, that's really good. You know, that means that we our have consistency, yeah, our, our politicians, knowledge, yeah, yeah, our politicians aren't corrupt people kicking out all the people. But it also means we have a group of people who are agenda setters, like in Russ's example, who are always agenda setters. And those people have their own interests. And I'd like to believe that our government's populated by angels, 
But that's also not a correct anthropology, I don't think, to just assume that everyone is this perfect person who's other, you know, facing. And even if it were, that wouldn't be enough. But I don't think that is true in the first place. I'm increasingly convinced that democracy ultimately devolves into sort of a weird pseudo-oligarchy, which I think a lot of people are noticing right now, both right and left, that our corporate leaders and our political leaders have these relationships. What do you mean by oligarchy? Oligarchy is the kind of the rule of the few. And so you can think of monarchy as the rule of the one. Oligarchy is the rule of a few elites. Um, And so this would be sort of like an unofficial oligarchy where, you know, in name we're democracy, but in practice we have, you know, corporate leaders and politicians in this revolving door of relationships that it's basically a few people all the time. So one of the things that Russ's example, I think, brought out really well is that democracy can move from a policy in a direction that people think is wrong, even if individuals are voting on what they think is in their best interest. And then I like this idea of the rule. Rule by a few. No, so there's the agenda setters. Or, yes. Yeah. So one of the things that you often hear complained about in our elections is gerrymandering, right? Where people redraw the lines on the <laughs> map to make it the case that elections come out a certain way. And well, that's true too. An- another thing that you can actually gerrymander if you want to set policy instead of changing the lines on who gets to vote, you change what people are allowed to vote on. And mm-hmm. that agenda setting is another, yeah. um, is something else that can be yeah. done. Kind of the pork barreling type of concept of changing what it looks like. Yeah. And so this, this confusion that people have with democracy, which is merely a decision procedure, right? It, it's just a decision procedure. And this use of that same word as a term for this utopian outcome is where, you know, people's brains get broken when the, an election goes in a direction that they didn't want it to go. And so you find people saying things like, well, how can we fix democracy? So there's like this guy that I don't like, Glenn Weil, has this project about how to fix democracy. And it's this, well, it's quadratic voting. We'll have, we'll, we'll make voting more responsive to people's needs. And well, they're experimenting in New York right now on the second yeah, this, uh, uh, rank ordering vo- voting, which is hilarious because they're doing, they're not doing that for the actual general election, right? They're just <laughs> doing it for the primaries. And I think it all comes down to, look, this idea that if we get, that everybody knows best how everybody else should live is I think insane. I think if we're honest with ourselves, we have to realize that we often don't even know what's best for us as individuals. (laughs) You know, probably not many other people know better than us what's good for us as individuals, but we often make mistakes. And this idea that all of us as imperfect predictors of what will be good for us individually are somehow jointly together going to be perfect predictors of what will be good for us as a society. There's a huge missing step there. And I think it's impossible to make that uh, leap. Yeah. So how do we make democracy work? I guess maybe in that vein, I'll lead off on this because to me, it just comes right to limited government. When I hear people complain about what Trump does or what Biden does or something, imagine a world where the powers of the presidency were dramatically limited. And so out with executive orders with the stroke of a pen and something, the apple cart turns upside down. So we have some sort of 
relatively stable rule of law that's slow moving, kind of maybe something along the lines that the founders envisioned. But imagine that it's reality that whoever gets into office, my world stays pretty much the same. It might change a little over a longer period of time as a president makes some little moves and is able to sway Congress into passing some sort of new law. And so slowly but surely, things change a little, but never a lot. And so then I think, who's getting a president? Well, I'm not even going to go vote because A, my vote doesn't really matter anyway, as we've already said. <laughs> and now it really doesn't matter because we don't even have to fight because it really doesn't matter if Biden's in office or Trump's in office. What happens to me in my world, in my community, in my state, in my city doesn't change from day to day, from president to president. So I think... I, I I think that would be nice, and I I, I a think a little utopian maybe. Well, I, here here's my issue: is I actually think that the scope of government or the powers that government have are dependent on the process of democracy itself. In other words, all these problems we've identified with democracy, the scope of the democracy's power is endogenous to those problems. In other words, you know, the fact that de- democracy has this failed process is actually going to cause the powers to expand beyond what you want them to. I think that's like baked in. Okay. And so I, I, I would so like for a totalitarian liked, dictator. No, no. Named so, Peter Jacobson. Uh, so I, well, <laughs> only in my own life, I, I'm, I'm certainly happy being my own dictator, but not the dictator of other people. Uh, you know, I, I, I politically am, I'd say I'm personally optimistic and politically pessimistic. I don't think that there is a system that is particularly exciting to me as the solution. I, I don't want to go back to the past. I don't think that, you know, those systems worked very well. I don't want to conserve the current system and I'm not interested in progressing towards a social democracy. I'm really in none of those camps. I want something new or different that I don't have a conception of. That's the only thing I'd be interested in. But in the meantime, before that thing comes to exist, which actually works, uh, assuming it does, which maybe it won't. But in the meantime, I think the best thing that people can do for their own lives is outside of the realm of politics. I think that's the answer. And it's frustrating to a lot of people. People want political action because it makes them feel important. But the best way to have any sort of effect in your life is to be responsible with your own life, to do the duties that you've been called to do, do good at your job, keep up good relationships with your family, make friends, spend time with people, try to help those people in your lives. I think that politics is a treadmill and you will not make progress in that area. And I don't think that there's any point in doing that. Uh, So that's why I say I'm politically pessimistic, but I'm optimistic because it's much better to put your life in your own hands. And I think that's what, you know, improving yourself involves. Uh, So, you know, with your family, spiritually, personally, you have a lot of ability to make your life better. Uh, And that ability just doesn't rest in politics. And thank goodness, because if it did rest in politics, uh, I think you'd be out of luck. And so that, that's my opinion. I, I, am, I don't think that we need to fix democracy. I don't think there's fixing it because there was never a time where it was much better than it is now. You know, we had problems in the past and it regressed what we have today regardless. Uh, you know, I don't think we go back to monarchy. I don't think that was better or anything like that. I, I think we, uh, a political system that deserves allegiance is something that we've never seen before. Well, you were kind of holding out democracy as a thing. And I think that's what I was trying to point out earlier. So to me, democracy is a bundle of things. So some of those things, what I brought up just in too general in, in part was just limiting the scope of the abilities of the people who are elected. So we have to continue to seek to limit their scope 
with different things rather than where are we going to move the needle today? Like, here's what the status quo is. Do we move towards them having more things to do or less? I say less. And so that's where I'm at with. And I, I agree. I, I want less, but I think the process says more. And so I don't think that actual uh, voting or, or political action will lead to less because I think within the process is the demand that it be more and more and more and more, uh, which is what I think we've seen over the past uh, couple hundred years. Yeah, but uh, I'm just hearing this, many, like, just leave it alone from you. Yes, uh, I, I think that you're much... What we got is the best that the, there is. There's no better... Uh, no, no, uh, there is imp- room for improvement, <laughs> but it's in your life. I think the marginal benefit of you improving your own life is much better than the marginal benefit of you trying to mess with the government. I, I, I think that that's true for almost everyone, almost always, and certainly almost everyone in the United States. I agree, but you're sidestepping the question. Is that it, Should we... Uh, I. I for one thing, totally agree with you. And I've told my students this for 30 years, like you worry about your life, microeconomics yeah. is where it's at. Um, and, you know, choose to not. So I, but I think there's a point where society flips on you and the things that you take for granted now aren't going to be able to be realizable. If, if we don't push for some changes, maybe some people need to hang their hat on causes. I think here at the Gorton Institute, we're pushing for freedom and we're doing stuff like podcasts and educating so that when they do hit the voting booth, maybe there's a chance of moving the needle or slowing down the needle, but slowing down the growth might be the uh, the best thing. But that, that's kind of what I want to hit I, at. I, I'm with you until you say the voting booth. I, <laughs> I, I think that it's important to spread these ideas of freedom. I think that matters a lot, but we live in a world of trade-offs. And I actually don't think it's ever uh, a good choice or uh, I haven't yet experienced when it's a good choice to uh, sacrifice personal improvement for spending time in the political sphere, because there is always that trade-off. Whenever you spend one minute in politics, that's one more minute you could have spent with your family. I haven't experienced a time when that's worth it. I've taken that trade-off before and I think it's a mistake. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that's my personal view on it. But I agree advocating for these ideas are important. Uh, but not, I think, towards an electoral end. I, I just don't think that's so. This the way. untouchable Leviathan is just live your life and hope for the best. Yeah, I think the Leviathan rotates around and it changes and the it's good okay. life comes at death pa- when you're with Christ. <laughs> power up can, in power consolidates and it period. falls apart and there are cycles. And I, I think for the most part, uh, just like the weather, uh, there's no point in trying to prevent the clouds from coming. Get your umbrella. Uh, you know, they wear it outside, wear a coat outside when it's cold outside. But I think the, the weather is a fact of life. I think the state ha- is something like that. So I'm very sympathetic to Peter's point. And, uh, you know, people who know me and, uh, you know, know that I, I don't even vote. Right. So uh, but if you were to ask me, Russ, you know, how do we save democracy or what uh, what do we want to keep about democracy? I would say the key has to be decentralizing. I think that the mobs, the mob is more dangerous, the bigger it is. And and this idea that, uh, you know, we settle all these issues at the national level democratically is more dangerous than settling issues at uh, the state level or the city level democratically. And one of the reasons for that is that, you know, um, I actually have a much better idea about what my colleagues want and what will be good for my colleagues than I do about uh, people all over the nation. And I care about them more. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, look, if you want to make democracy less dangerous, you need to decentralize it. And I, I think this can marry with my my kind of view towards things, too, because I think one of the most effective movements towards decentralization that's occurred over the past decade has been a movement towards cryptocurrencies. And this wasn't a policy decision. 
Uh, no one voted on this, though they're trying to vote against it now, but no one, no one voted on this. Uh, this is something that a person in their life develops because they thought this is going to make the world better off and I, I want to make the world better off through my own actions. And it came about. And, you know, that's one example. And Bitcoin's a huge example, but everyone can have this decentralization impact in their life. Uh, you don't need the law of government if you have effective law within your family, or at least you need less of it, right? If you, you know, can keep your own house in order, uh, there's less need to appeal to local and state and national government. That doesn't mean that it'll ignore you and that you'll be able to spend life without any law at all uh, being imposed from on high, but it'll be a little bit better for you. And so I think decentralization, uh, everyone has access to it. It's not just tech geniuses who create Bitcoin, but that's a great example of it is Bitcoin. So do you think, let me phrase this a little differently, do you, do you think that the, the United States is set that it won't ever fall into a Venezuela type of regime? Oh, no, it absolutely could. Uh, I don't know if it will. If, if I knew it will, I would have probably gone somewhere else. But I, I don't think that the, the way to offset that sort of thing is by trying to change the political sphere. I think having a good family, having a good church, uh, you know, becoming a competent person yourself, learning... All of those things will help you if we ever fall into Venezuela. Help you escape the regime. Or or, or, to, or at least go. spiritually escape the regime, right? Maybe you still live within the regime, but you're able to have something worth living for. You know, if you're, uh, one of the nice things about being out in Kansas is like, you know, who's going to bother us in Ottawa, Kansas, really? Uh, maybe they go to Kansas City, you know, maybe the regime's somewhat interested in the big cities. But I'm out far enough that I imagine it's going to be a long time before someone knocks on my door if we ever fall into a Venezuela situation. Uh, U.S. is a big country. And so having a good family, having something worth living for, having a great job, working with great people, all of those things are ways to insulate yourself spiritually from uh, something that I don't think we can prevent politically if it were to come around. Yeah, I think that's uh, – I would love to, for once, work with great people. I think uh, that's – key is to uh, have the regime as much as possible not matter so much to you yeah. and the converse of that for you not to matter so much to the regime. Yeah. Mm. yeah. And I, I think Jesus's life demonstrates this a lot. And this kind of goes yeah. back to the render unto Caesar podcast is Jesus didn't try to talk about how the Romans were stupid for having lots of gods. He didn't stand on the, the pulpit and preach about how we need to overthrow the Romans. He kind of ignored the Romans. When people asked him questions, he would give answers and he would tell the truth. But he, he wasn't seeking, you know, political martyrdom. Martyrdom came for him and as it could come for us all. And we shouldn't be surprised if it does. Uh, but Jesus made his life one that was worth dying for anyways. And so I think we can all do that. Uh, and we don't have to inspire a political revolution in order to stop it from coming. So you're advocating to be a free rider. Um, no, I don't think that anybody else is making a positive difference. So I can't free ride off anything. Well, there's a system, though, that does change. And it changes through the actions of people, but I don't think it's it in our best interest to stay more localized to our own personal issues and pay little, if any, attention to those political issues. I don't think it changes the actions. Makes through, you a, a, a rational free ride. I don't think it changes through the actions of most people. Uh, so I, I'd say maybe like 0.5 percent of the country's actions affected, and so. I'm free riding off the positive externalities as much as I'm the negative externalities for what they decide. Yeah, uh, no, I, no, I, the free rider problem is a rational result. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. uh, and I think we're advocating and I, I'm agreeing with you all the way along here that don't get too worked up about politics. 
get worked up about what your situation is yeah. and do something for yourself. Individual, you do have freedoms that may seem like they're being thwarted by the media or the color of your skin or your gender or otherwise your preferences. But in reality, we've got it pretty good here in the United States. So carpe diem. Yeah. And I, I, I not one to suck up much, but Russ, I think you're a good example of this. You're someone who's built your own business. You've worked in real estate. You founded the Gordon Institute. These are all things that you personally have done that have made an impact on the world that have nothing to do with the voting booth at all. I, I, I really believe that. And so, you know, the amount of time you spent politics versus the amount of time you've spent in personal life building relationships, I think that's a clear illustration of the, the point that I, I think is true here. Well, I will take those kudos as a wrap unless anybody else has another final word. This has been a production of the Gorton Institute here at Ottawa University, and I'd like to thank you all for listening. If you get a chance to give us a ranking of five stars, that sure helps other people find us if you like what you're listening to. Other than that, be fruitful multiply. Thanks.